Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest, someone I'm very excited to talk to and for you all to learn about. I'm here with Darren Lang. He is the founder and chief executive officer for Kepler & Company. How you doing, Darren? Oz, I'm good in you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm so excited to have you. There's so much I want to talk about. I want to hear about your company. I know you're based out of South Africa. I'm really interested in learning more about that market. But I want to start here because you've moved into a world uh, where you're working with companies around skills and skills enhancement. But you didn't start kind of down a traditional path. And so I do want to start there. You told me that you were passionate about accounting, of all things, at a very young age. So tell me, how did that start? How did you figure out that you love numbers? And how did you get into that space? Yes. Yeah, so when I finished school, I, uh, I was told by my accounting teacher, you're good at accounts, study accounts at university. And so I listened. It wasn't a, I didn't actually want to study anything else. I was good at it and I enjoyed it. And it was also a trajectory which I wanted to follow because um, I came to believe that this was the way to create and build and if I want to call it manufacture a place for myself in the business world and also to be successful that was the notion um but I found out very soon that uh, I was wrong I uh, I studied accounting I went on to lecture accounting and when I finished my lecturing I went into the real world of work which was actually articles and um, auditing companies and what I found really quite scary was I didn't have any skills and when I talk about the skills, the only skills that I had was theoretical skills. I didn't have any practical skills, especially when it came to data management. Microsoft Excel then was one of the biggest tools being used, and I completely struggled with it. Um, I also didn't have a lot of personal skills. I didn't have the behavioral human skills. Many people call them soft skills. Um, and these were skills that I needed to develop. And um, that started my journey. I love that. And listen, there's a lot to take away from there. First off, data management and Excel for an accountant, I got to imagine are pretty important skills to have. So that was, that must have been quite an aha for you. I think the other thing I would say is that, you know, I went through kind of a traditional path where I went to the University of Arizona before graduating. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I got to school, as most 18 year olds would not. And I started majoring and I started doing some different things to kind of figure that out. And I got to be honest with you, even after I had graduated and gotten into my career, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I think one of the biggest disservices we do to young individuals is kind of putting them into these tracks. Hey, you're good at accounting. You're good at math. You should do this without a real understanding of what it entails to be in that space, right? And that's why I've always been a big believer of apprenticeship in addition to further university and academic schooling to really get an understanding. Because I started my career in technology and now that's tended to pay off for me in terms of technology and my knowledge in that space. But the last 12, 13 years, I've been, I've been in HR. I've been in kind of the human capital world and the talent space, which is very different than when I started. And so I just think sometimes it's fun, funny that people will give you advice on where to go, but you have to figure that out on your own. And, and it sounds like you did. So in terms of kind of that aha moment, did you just drop accounting and move on? Or what kind of led to that transition? Was there a mentor or anybody that gave you advice? Yeah. So in fact, uh, I never actually wanted to practice as an accountant because the normal plan for an accountant is finish university, finish your articles at an audit firm. And when you finish that, uh, you become a financial manager, eventually becoming a financial director, eventually becoming a CFO of a business, maybe if you're lucky. Um, but that's that's a very traditional type of path. Obviously, everybody follows a different path. But um, I never wanted that. I didn't want to be a financial manager in the first place. And in fact, um, I failed at so many interviews. 
I had I had CFA behind me. I was top 10 in my class for chartered accountancy, well, in, in, in honors at least. And uh, I thought that I paved the way to success and I did not at all. And the reason was because I didn't want to be the, the traditional financial manager. I wanted more. I wanted something that was very aligned with, with what and who I was. Um, and that's, you know, to your point about career coaching, if I can call it that. I haven't seen the data really. It's something that in our business we're going to get into. But um, I, I agree with you. I don't think that uh, you can predict someone's path, nor should you force someone into a certain path um, based on who they are today um it, it really is a it, it's it's a consolidation of just so many things experiences truths and learning over years that will tell you who you are and where you need to get to and that's what i had during articles um i had many mentors i was very fortunate that uh, you know my father's successful businessman my father-in-law has had a huge influence on me too very successful businessman and entrepreneurs and um the i've learned a lot from them but even the wider community that i've been able to engage with um business people business leaders um those are all mentors to me so what i did is i took tidbits from everybody that aligned with me and then as i said earlier i consolidated all of those and i went on my own path and i still do that today i learn from different people and um, i use bits and pieces from each person which really aligns with where i want to go i guess that yeah. that's uh, I love that. I, I believe strongly that if you take from enough places and consolidate together, it becomes original thought and original content, right? And so the fact that you had so many different entrepreneurs and business people in your life that have been able to give you kind of that advisement, I'm sure has led to a lot of your success. Let's talk about that because I love listening to founders. I love hearing about what founders do in terms of their core principles. Do you have any core principles that maybe if somebody's getting ready to open up their own business or maybe a founder who's struggling a little bit that helped you or that you aligned to that may help somebody who's listening? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the reason it's so easy to answer is because core principles is something when I started the business, I read Ray Dalio's book. I've got it right over here. And that favorites. was the foundation of everything. And it's it's called Principles. You got it there too. Yeah, Fantastic. There we go. And that's, I recommend that book to, to everybody and, every, and everybody to write their own principles. But I would say the number one principle, if I have one thing, is integrity. Because integrity, people believe that integrity means honesty. Okay, it's an umbrella and honesty and being ethical is within that. But integrity comes down to consistency. Always being there, always showing up. Be consistent in the way that you treat people. So if I treat you differently to the way that I treat you when I'm in front of my friends, I lack integrity. And when it comes to business, you've got to have integrity in all of your dealings. When it comes to all your stakeholders, the way that you treat suppliers, customers, um, don't treat customers well, but treat your suppliers badly. Don't treat your shareholders badly, but treat your customers well. Um, you've got to have consistency. So that's the that's the one thing that I would um, advise any founder. Sure. And I will, I will compound on that. So integrity is one of our eight values, and we talk about our values quite a bit. And I agree, uh, being honest and being transparent, I mean, that's cost of admission. You can't work at MSH or Aon if you are not honest in all your dealings. To me, that's part of the umbrella. But the main thing about integrity for me is consistency, reliability, following through on what you say. And we call that say-do ratio here at MSH. And we talk about that a lot. And that has two components to it, right? You have to first know what your capabilities are and what you can get done. And then it has to really matter to you to follow through on your word. I'm the type of guy, I can't sleep at night if I told somebody I'd do something and I didn't get to it. I just can't. It's really, really important to me. And that doesn't mean that you're 100% there, 
But the closer to 100% you are, the higher integrity you have. And I would say for any entrepreneur, any leader, anybody who wants anybody to follow them, that is one of the first core key principles I think of. Absolutely. And you have, on that yeah, go, note, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about reflection and feedback, because uh, I know we talked about it a little bit too. Sure, sure. Uh, just just to, as a side note, um, I'm reading a book now by Gary Vee, which is called 12 and a Half. Ooh, and uh, that's, that's a book that I would also recommend because what he does is not everything's black and white. So if you look at, if you look at a, accountability, he'll say something like, there's accountability, but accountability comes with something like optimism. So you can't be accountable if you're not optimistic about the future, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't want to learn. You wouldn't want to be curious. And therefore, there comes curiosity. He speaks about things like kind candor. So it's about taking those principles and also using them together in combo. I love that. I'm going to have to write that down. I'm, I love Gary Vee. I'm going to have to check out that book. And, you know, I, I'm reading a book right now called The Rational Optimist. And I read it after I read Abundance. And one of the things that is a constant theme in both of those books is that we live in a time where people are, you know, oh, things are tough and there's this kind of political divide and there's this lack of um, inequity. And listen, all those things exist and we should be vigilant about trying to make them as close to perfect as possible. That's an ongoing thing and it always will be. But my gosh, when you look at GDP for countries, you look at the overall health, you look at the intelligence, you look at the wellness, infant mortality, food, water, all of these things are light years better even than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. And yet what we see on the news tends to not focus on that. And so going back to kind of founders and core principles, I really believe that rational optimism is what you have to be, right? Again, it's if you want to lead people, you have to believe in them. You have to believe in the future and you have to believe in your ability to impact the future. And so I totally agree with you on that. The accountability aspect of what you said I think is so important, but also that optimism of what's to come. You have to be able to get up out of bed that day no matter how tough it's been and be ready to fight again. And I just think that's such a key trait of all founders and entrepreneurs I know that are successful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. So let's talk about Kepler & Co. Because I know you are passionate about getting the skills of tomorrow for the jobs of today. And I think that's something that's obviously very important and integrated to what we do here at MSH around identifying great talent. A lot of that is helping great talent get skills for the jobs of tomorrow. So why is this important to you, though? Like, obviously, I can see the importance of it in terms of working with talent, but I'm interested to know why this was an area that you decided to dedicate your life, your blood, sweat, and resources to and made it such an area of passion for you. So there's there's a few reasons why, you know, it comes together like a web, if I can describe it that way. The first reason would be a fundamental reason that, uh, you know, I experienced, and that was during my first jobs, um, I wasn't really equipped with any... KPIs or goals. I wasn't, there was no dissemination of information by uh, the leaders in the businesses in which I worked. And it's a big, big issue because without goals, you don't know where to go. You're not given a compass and a map. And when you're not given a compass and a map, how can you have feedback? And if the feedback that you're given is given by a manager, how do you know that that feedback is actually accurate, whether the feedback is quality feedback and is based on empirical evidence? And so that's what really started my journey um, because I, I, I didn't know where I needed to go. So I didn't know what skills I needed in order for me to get to where I was going and also where the company wanted to get to. So there was no dissemination of information. And I often communicate it in the way that you have that you, you have that feeling in your chest, in your solar plexus before you know going to bed on a Sunday night because you know you're anticipating a work week from hell. 
And I, I just, I wanted to get rid of that for people around the world. I, I guess that that's what I really wanted to get rid of. And the root cause of my, I guess it was a form of anxiety was I didn't know what was re, you know required of me. I, I didn't know what I actually needed to do. And I wasn't aware of where I needed to be, even after multiple times of asking for feedback and asking um, leadership what needed to take place in order for me to progress and for them to succeed with me. That was one reason. The other reason is in my family, my brother and I, we were the first people to get a full qualification and degree. But people around me, including my wife's family, um, people who didn't have degrees and my father, my father-in-law, um, didn't place a big emphasis on credentials and preconditions. And that's what this is all about. It's about creating a world in which skills matter and capabilities matter and experience matters, right? And we call that a skills-led economy, if you want to call it that, or a skills-based economy. But what we want to really do is help organizations become skills-led where the emphasis is placed on what people can do, the role, the verb, not the noun of the title, because titles, they don't really mean much. It's the verb, it's the doing. Last piece, when I did graduate, at my graduation, my father came to me and he said to me, well done, congratulations. While everybody else was getting new cars and bouquets of flowers and champagne, he came to me and he said to me, well done, Darren, but now it's time to get the degree of life. And I guess that that's what we want to give people. We want to give them the degree of life and that's skills. And not to say that degrees don't matter. Degrees do matter. There are certain job roles in which if you don't have the degree, you cannot get that job. If you want a data scientist, perhaps you want a certain degree, a doctor, any, 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 anything, you know, in, in the sciences, I guess. Um, but it's, it's not to say that a lot of merit um, should not go to the capabilities that someone brings to the organization. Well, quite frankly, you need both. I mean, I, I definitely in specialization areas like medical degrees and law degrees, super important to have a certain level of criteria that you have passed so that people can have credibility in your ability to perform that service because there's a lot on the line, whether it be somebody's health or somebody's, you know, you know, financial or, or criminal type, you know, endeavors, whatever it may be. You need to know that you have somebody that's gone through and understands things from A to Z. At the same time, you always need to be compounding skills on top of that. And it's not just those technical skills that matter. It's those life skills. It's those behavioral skills that also are usually the difference between you being a great success in your role and not. So I think that's a great call out on your part. Uh, and I love that, the degree of life. That sounds like that your dad said that, and that super resonated with you. Hopefully, you got at least a nice dinner later on. But I think that was great advice for you. Now, I got to ask you. We want, we want to ask, you know, you've worked with a lot of companies here. What do companies typically get wrong when it comes to learning and development in particular? Great. So what we've seen with businesses, firstly, is there's many things that companies get wrong, but there's also many things that they get right. And they must be also you know, awarded for that. People are slow to um, compliment, I guess, and very quick to criticize. But let's speak about the criticism now because it does matter and it's good for companies to reflect on. So the first thing that we see, I would say, is they want to try get everything perfect. So a very, very good example is I was sitting in a lecture once and one of the delegates who was a head of learning from a business in the UK, he put up there his hand and he said, we haven't gotten the definition or the difference in definition between a skill and a competency. So we cannot embed a skills competency framework into our business just yet. 
to which the moderator and the lecturer said, who cares? Get started. And, and it's not that a competency and, and the, the, it's not that the definition doesn't matter. What matters is that you do get started with something. And I think that that's maybe it plays into people's risk aversion that they want things to be perfect first. Um, and they feel that they'll fail. They, they, they're scared that they're going to mess something up in the organization. But doing something is better than doing nothing. And when you haven't equipped your workforce with knowing what's expected of them, um, it's, it's far worse than starting and at least crowdsourcing the skills, using some sort of skill analysis framework, um, just doing something. So that's the first thing is just not getting started and trying to aim for perfection. The next thing is also serving irrelevant content. So by serving irrelevant content, what I mean by that is you dump content on your workforce just because they told you that they need it or because you believe that they need it, right? But what really is the way to map content? And that should be based on priority of the content. So is it relevant? But also, is this person using the skill on a daily basis, monthly basis, weekly basis, or are they coaching it? Do they need to teach or do they need a review? So you need to understand that. And then the next thing is also proficiency. How proficient are they in the skill already? So a very good example is Microsoft Excel. Because now if you're giving someone a, an intermediate course who maybe should be on basic first, um, you know, perhaps you're wasting company money, you're wasting budget, put them on the intermediate course next year or after a few months. But really be strategic about it. And the best way to do that is with a skills analysis because then you can map it correctly, right? Um, it's not just about searching for keywords on um, certain content aggregation sites and looking for content. That's not the way to learn. Um, I think also a big mistake that they tend to make is long, long form courses. But then again, I don't, I don't want to speak about content curation and, and instructional design too much, um, but also just understanding your audience and the time that they spend at their desk, the time that they actually have to learn. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no reason to serve people with hours and hours and hours of content when they can't get through it. And then that's part of their KPIs and their goal to get through it. Um, another mistake is learning doesn't mean it's going to solve your problems. So a very, very good example is there's a company that runs uh, learning for uh, certain call centers. And what they do is when there's perhaps a glitch in uh, KPIs being met. So if your goal is 10 and you reach eight, they send you learning. But but that's not that's not how you solve the gap of two, right? Um, so I think that that's another big mistake that we see. Um, and then lastly, I mean, there's, there's quite a few that we do see, but one other big mistake that we've encountered with clients is there's no common skills language and there's no common learning language, if I can call it that. So there's a lack of horizontal integration. What I mean by that is there's a lot of siloed departments and there's a lot of isolation of metrics and goal dissemination. So the marketing department doesn't actually know what the what revenue is doing. Finance doesn't really know what the sales department's doing or really what the business does, right? And the reason is nothing's tracked to purpose. Nothing's aligned with the purpose, right? You spoke about Peter Drucker to me when we first met. You said, um, culture eats, uh, no, you already said culture eats profit for strategy breakfast. for breakfast. Yeah, exactly. And, and if, if, if the business isn't centered around the product and the people and the purpose, then, you know, that nothing's really happening. So we do see that in learning a lot where, um, there's so many platforms in the business, there's no common skills language in the business. And 
one department's doing something on their own where another department's doing something with uh, two other departments and there's just it's one big balagan as we can say i love that and listen i know you said at the beginning that companies are doing some things right but it sure sounds like they're doing a hell of a lot of things wrong. And so if that's the case, I would welcome you to look up Kepler & Company. Look at what you're doing. I know I'm certainly going to do that because there's a lot of opportunity for growth and learning and development. And I'm excited to get into the hiring. We'll do that in a minute. I want to ask you one more thing. All right. Before we get into the hiring questions, I want to ask you a little bit about where you're based in South Africa. I know very little about that market from a business, entrepreneurship, and innovation perspective. So what can you tell me about your experience there and what you've seen? Great. So... I'm not a, an expert at all when it comes to VC or investments. I'm not. I only know what I know from the VCs who backed us, one being Launch Africa. They're very big in Africa. They've done very well because they've taken the entrepreneur and they've said, we'll back you. They don't say, where's your lead investor or too much risk. There is There are cases where there's risk and they don't get involved. But um, I mean, they've got north of 130 portfolio companies. Th that's great. But far and few between. You don't get a lot of VCs in South Africa who are investing in South African businesses. So the reason I'm telling you this is because it's it's very much a double-edged sword, the way that I see it here. It's very entrepreneurial in South Africa, which is fantastic. You've got so many, you've got so many startups, and there's a place for startups. It's welcomed. You see many young people sitting, and, and not, I shouldn't say young people, old people too, sitting at coffee shops starting their businesses, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get funded, no matter how good the idea is. Firstly, a lot of investors from offshore investors don't want to invest in South Africa um, for multiple reasons. Our infrastructure isn't um, looking good at the moment. And also the electricity and power problem, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's avalanched into something quite big. But that's not the main concern. The main concern is that a lot of VCs run away from the opportunities in South Africa because they want someone else to share the risk with them. So mm -hmm. from our perspective, you don't really see venture capital in South Africa, although a lot of players profess to be venture capitalists. They've private equity. They, they're private equity. They, they don't have the risk appetite that VCs do. Um, and so it's very, very hard to find funding if you're a young South African starter. Um, the talent here is unbelievable. The tech talent in South Africa is absolutely amazing. We've got an incredible team. Um, our team is based in South Africa and the UK. Um, and our South African team is on a different level. They are proficient. They're unbelievable. Many of whom are homeschooled. They don't even have a degree in uh, in back-end dev or, or engineering. They're, they're very good and multiply that. It's, you know, you, you can really take that and it's a sample of a huge population of brilliance and it's a very very it's it's a big pity so there, there's a really good article that was put out a few weeks ago where they speak about naspass naspass was actually partly owned by tencent and uh naspass pulled out of well at least their private equity venture capital fund naspass so they're a corporate venture capital fund right yeah 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 they they, they pulled out there was it was about one and a half billion rand oh, no. if i'm not mistaken um, I think it was one and a half billion rand. They they pulled out, and that's not not a good you know that's not good news for South Africa. It's 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 not a good perception of the market here. Um, but having said that, there's a lot of opportunity. Unfortunately, a lot of there aren't many unicorns in South Africa. If you ask, there was an article that spoke about 
when they asked they asked ChatGPT how many unicorns are there in South Africa, tech unicorns, and um, I think it said none, something like that. There are unicorns, but not tech new tech unicorns. Um, a lot of businesses are domiciled offshore. Uh, we're domiciled offshore. Um, and uh, there's many reasons for that, you know, where first you've got founders from overseas, um, offshore founders, but also the opportunities overseas. Uh, VCs are funding offshore businesses. Uh, people want to deal with your technology overseas, the maturity of the markets, and also governments, um, tax. Um, th there are a few incentives here, but not, not like the UK where you get a R&D tax credit, you know. Sure. Um, it's an, it sounds like an underserved market. I mean, maybe there's some VCs listening to this that can see that there's some opportunity there. And from your, and from, you're absolutely right. I mean, you're really going to be able to, if you can find the next emerging market, if you can find the next area where there's top talent and take on maybe some of that infrastructure risk, the upside sounds like it's tremendous. Now, one of the things that I've seen is that some of the tech accelerators like YC, High Alpha, Techstars, they, their amount of international applicants and, 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 and companies that they bring into the portfolio for each uh, class and session um, is, is at a higher uh, basis than it's ever been. So I do see the international growth there. Obviously, um, a company like Atlassian um, that was wildly successful that started in Australia really helped that market boom in terms of looking at that as a, an underserved market that maybe is probably getting more capital and opportunity now than ever before. I think that that's probably on the way for South Africa. I think it just has to go through some revolutions and maybe some smart investors are going to see what you see in terms of the talent on the ground and the opportunity and say that this is a good place, that if we're going to spend our powder, that this is where we want it to be. So hopefully somebody's listening to this and then they can take that idea and run with it because it sounds like the market deserves it. It deserves the opportunity to thrive like we see in the UK, like we see in Silicon Valley and other uh, places here in the US, um, Australia, you know, uh, whatever it may be. So love that, great answer and, and, and very informative for those who just don't have a ton of exposure to that part of the world. Now. We got to talk about my obsession. We got to talk about hiring. And I got to be honest with you, I, I'm so excited to ask you this because typically most people I talk to when it comes to hiring, they're looking at things from a static perspective, right? When this person sits down in front of me, this is what I'm getting. And yet you have an entire company based off the idea that we can give people skills and develop them. So you might be looking for something a little bit different when it comes to the people sitting in front of you and what their max potential can eventually be if they get the right L&D, which we know they do at your company. So let's start here overall interviewing hiring philosophy that you use at Kepler and company for anybody that you bring in? Right. Um, so the first thing is I never look at a CV. Hmm. I don't look at a CV unless I really need to. Um, I don't, I don't base my judgments off a CV or off. I, I also never go to social media. So those are just side notes and go to social media and try to review the person. Um, I love referrals. I love working with people who've worked with people I know um, or interviewing people at least. Uh, and I know that sounds like a little bit of an echo chamber, but um, it takes away, it mitigates quite a little bit of, uh, quite a bit of risk. Sure. What we've followed at Kepler, which has worked quite well is the Amazonian. It's, it's an Amazonian methodology, which uh, we picked up from Bisonomics. Um, you know, it's, it's freely yeah, you available. You mean the company in Seattle, not the rainforest in South America. I'm, I'm sorry. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Just making sure. <laughs> we don't, yeah. we don't put them through, uh, you know, any, any, uh, Tasks in the Amazon rainforest or, you know, make them. Uh, <laughs> That's actually not a bad idea. Maybe we should think about that. Go ahead, though. Yeah, exactly. So it's very Amazonian. And the way that we've implemented is as follows. So one person who has the job spec. So let's say it's our head of product who needs to hire a full stack developer. 
what that person will do, our head of product, she'll create a job spec. This is what needs to be fulfilled. If I'm, she'll define also who's going to be interviewing so-called person that's succeeded on the first round interview with her. Let's just say that we've passed that. She'll identify who's going to be interviewing them, send them the job spec. So if it's our head of success, me, and let's say our marketing person, can you see that what, what I've said, have you noticed what I've said is people are going to be interviewing a full stack developer who have nothing to do with product. Mm -hmm. Me, even though I do have something to do with product, I'm CEO and I'm running more of the sales arm, marketing arm, success arm, but I'm still going to interview this person predominantly on culture fit. Head of marketing, head of success are going to interview them in their own way. But each of us interview this person and then we sit in a room together once everybody's interviewed and then we discuss our findings. We don't give immediate feedback after every interview session. And what we found is that it becomes very unbiased and also you're getting people from different parts of the business keeping you honest, that making sure that you're not hiring just because you're desperate to hire, making sure, especially from our side, making sure that the person's a culture fit, making sure that they understand why culture is so important for one to get a position in our business and alignment. So we take that very, very seriously. And then most importantly, we focus heavily, heavily on skills. Does the person have the skills? Now, there's actually a grid. And this is not Margaret. It was it was taught to me by and I cannot remember his name. Um, it was Jeff Jeff someone. I'll, I will I'll get the name for you. It was Jeff someone. He he had something to do with the rugby team in New Zealand or Australia. Jeff Levy. That was his name. Jeff Levy. He once gave us a lecture. And thank you, Jeff, if you're listening, where he spoke about culture. So if if you have an X and Y axis, so you've got your X axis and you've got your Y axis. Let's put culture on the X axis and on the Y axis. Put experience. Right. And therefore, now you can split the grid into four. You've got very low experience and very low culture at the bottom of the grid. You're never, ever, ever going to hire someone who falls into that slot. Right. It's, it's immediately known you're not going to hire them. You then move towards very, very high experience, but low culture. Once again, don't hire that person because if they're not a culture fit from the beginning, they're not going to be a culture fit. And Netflix, uh, um, read uh, if I'm not mistaken. No rules, rules. I already know where you're going with it. Amazing book. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mark Mark Randolph, I think, or Reed Hoffman. They both. Anyway, they 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 refer to them as brilliant jerks. I think it's actually not Reed Hoffman. He's from uh, LinkedIn. Um, Reed Hastings. If you're just gonna need, if uh, you're just gonna keep naming books, I'm just gonna keep pulling them out of the library. Yeah, and show yeah. You're talking about this one. There you go. There you go. Love it. Um, and 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 our culture deck is you know built a lot on the Netflix uh, culture, as hard as it is. But they call them brilliant jerks, where they got such a low culture fit but such high experience. Who cares? They're gonna a rotten apple's going to kill your team. But then you look at very very high culture fit or at least culture alignment, and then you get the two different options of well two different. Um, scenarios, one where there's low experience and one where there's high experience. High experience, you're going to hire because high culture fit, high experience, great, absolutely fantastic. But someone who's got the low experience, then you've got to make the choice. Do we have the capacity to train that person? Or does this person and does this role need high experience? Or are we willing to have someone who will learn on the job? And that's where we make our decisions. So everything's centered around culture, everything's centered around meritocracy, where 
just because I, as CEO, for example, want to make a hire, it doesn't mean that um, I can go ahead with it just because of my title. Um, and last one is, yeah, just we don't hire based on those titles. We hire based on those skills. Yeah, I love that. So, Jackie, first thing is, um, can you go on LinkedIn and look up Jeff Someone for us? Because I want to get him on the podcast. I think it's Jeff Levy, actually, now that he hasn't mentioned it. J, no, not J, G-E-O-F-F-L-E-V-Y. I'm kidding. I just love that you called him. I just love that you called him Jeff Someone, but he sounds like he's got a lot to bring to the table. So I love that. What you said about the CV is something that I've actually been doing for a long time. And what I do is typically there's somebody who's interviewing before me. And so I'll ask, what do you like about their work experience? Like what stands out to you about that? So I have some sort of baseline knowledge, but I'm not looking at the resume as I've may, as I've said a bunch of times, fuck the resume. It's, it's what kills meritocratic hiring. It's what creates the most biases for us. Um, and so really what we are trying to build from a software perspective and from our hiring process in terms of the services we offer to our clients is getting away from those biases that come from a CV and looking at how the person aligns with what you want out of the role. And so much of that, to your point, is behavioral and culture. And you're not going to get that on a resume. You're not going to get that in their little skills box. You're going to get that by walking them through interviews, by going through scenarios, by getting to know what motivates them and what's important to them. And you can really only do that in these interview sessions when you're diving in. And even then, I would say that's a flawed process to a degree because you're never going to know 100% about somebody when they get into the actual seat. But it's the best we've got, and it's something that I think is super, super important, and you hit it right on the head. You can train for aptitude. You cannot train on attitude and what is important to your company from a culture perspective. So let me ask you One important part, which I completely forgot out, is um, assessments. Assessments are important to us because it really gauges the proficiency um, and using Kepler, that's our tool. We're able to gauge the starting point of where their skills actually are. So everybody goes through uh, Kepler in one way or, or another, um, and we're able to really form a foundation of where they are today. Um, and uh, that's really helped us in a big, big way. So Kepler for hiring is absolutely next on the roadmap. Oh, I love that. We've got to talk about that more. All right, let me ask you, do you got a favorite question that you like to ask in your interviews? Yes. My favorite question that I ask is, do you read? And if you are reading, if they answer yes, um, then I ask what they're reading. It gives me a lot of information about the person, their mindset, what they're thinking and how they think and also what they enjoy. Um, No answer is a wrong answer. The wrong answer for me would be I don't read or I read articles, the paper. I I, I don't like that. Um, I I love people who are curious even if it takes them a year to read a book. Um, But I want someone who's curious. But it elicits incredible information about someone, especially once you know what book they're reading. So I'd love to tell you what I'm reading right now. I'll answer the question. I'm reading The Rational Optimist. I'm reading Setting the Table by Danny Mayer. It's one of the best business books I've ever read. You wouldn't expect that from a restaurateur, but I absolutely loved it. And I'm just starting a book called Range um, by... Mr. Epstein. I'm going to have to look at what his his first name is. David Epstein, maybe. Um, haven't started it yet, but I read. I heard about it on a podcast uh, by somebody who was in a VC who recommended it. So those are three books that I'm looking into. And it sounds like you're reading Gary Vee's book. Anything else on your plate right now? Or? Yeah, I, I read. I, I love the fact that you read multiple books. There are not many people. In fact, I put a post out about it a while ago. I got quite a bit of feedback. But um, I'm reading Bill Brasson on The Body. I'm reading Gary Vee. Um, I'm reading... Um, this is a great one is uh 
is beyond order by Jordan Peterson, a bit controversial. I know a lot of people don't like sure. Jordan Peterson. Um, and then I, uh, I'm, I'm reading a book on flow by Stephen Kotler also, which, uh, which, which has been absolutely fantastic. What's the name uh, of the book? Cause I'm, I'm really into getting into the flow state. What is that? <laughs> it is called the art of impossible. The art of impossible. Yeah. Yeah. I went blank for a moment. Art just of the, impossible. Just and, a couple uh, of book guys nerding out here, huh? I, I got to say one thing that you said that I think is important. Cause I do read multiple books at one time and I want to give a bit of advice that I think is really, really important. If you are reading a book and you don't like the book, put it down. Do not have this unnecessary need to finish books that are not doing it for you or they're repeating the same subjects over and over and over again. It will kill your love of reading. Now, I've been fortunate in the way that I curate the books that I choose to read that fortunately I've been able to have a high hit rate where I don't do that very often, but I also don't feel any type of commitment to making sure that I get through the entire 600 pages if I'm not feeling it, it doesn't excite me to go to the book. And so that was something that I think a lot of people get caught in that trap of like, oh God, it's drudgery. I got to finish it now. I don't believe that. I wouldn't recommend that. And I think that's going to kill your love for reading and being curious. What do you think about that? I love that. I, I think that's a great tip because I've done that before and it brings zero joy um, and it doesn't make you better. It just is a waste of time. And uh, you actually start to not enjoy it. You know, you, you start to resent your reading time. Um, Jordan Peterson recommended a book called The Gulag Archipelago. I've got it here. I, I had to put it down. It was too. It was too complex for me. I got to. I got to be honest. I, I enjoyed it because I learned a lot, and that the empathy that I had to, you know, bring was was a lot because it's a very very harsh book. But it was too long for me, and I wasn't enjoying it. So I put that down. One tip from our side, if you don't mind, what I do with books, and you may think I'm crazy, is um, I highlight and I mark off parts where I know that I'll use them in the future, even if it's two, three years down the line. So if you look at my bookshelf here, I've got uh, I've got bookmarks all over the place. I've got flags all over the place and I refer to them often. And as I can see, you, you're the same, right? Yep. So if you look here and when I get into it, I start to put in notes and, and we've completely gone off topic here, but that's fine. I'm the same way because I'm not going to usually reread a book, but what I will do is I'll go back and read the highlighted parts that stood out and resonated to me. And quite frankly, so many of the so much of the stuff I read, I try to implement pretty quickly into my company, into my day to day, into my routine, because that's why I'm reading. For me, it's like nutrition at the end of the day. Like I'm learning. I don't read fiction at all. I'm reading to get something out of it. And my first thing I'm thinking about when I'm reading is how does this apply to me? How can I make this work for me, my business and my company? I love that. We got to get back on track, though. We got to get back on hiring. So I got I to gotta ask you. Do you got a memorable hiring experience? Maybe somebody gave you a bad book recommendation, but is there any hiring interview that stands out to you? Either you were interviewing or somebody was interviewing you that, that resonates in your mind when I ask you for a memorable experience. Yeah, I've got, I've got a few. One is, uh, I'll speak about a personal one when I was being interviewed when I, I spoke earlier about failing in my first interviews. I, I went to go interview for one of the largest commodity traders in the world. That was the first um it was the first place I wanted to work. I just had this thing. I wanted to work for a commodity trader. And I got through the first, if I can call it the first round of interviews. I mean, it, it, it was with one of their CEOs at the time of one of the divisions. I got through it. And then um, I went through to, if I can call it the second round. And I had an interview with one of the, let's call him the, the lieutenants, right? And um, he asked me three questions. I can't remember all three, but I do remember one. One stands out. He said to me, where else are you interviewing? And I said, nowhere. This is where I want to go. And then he said, 
And what about secondment? And secondment, you know, at that stage, because I was finishing my articles, meant I could go and be an auditor in New York or in Australia or the UK. And I said to him, no, I haven't considered secondment because this is where I want to be. And I thought that would be a very, very good answer. To which he replied afterwards, he said, any good trader keeps his options open, mm. keeps their options open. That's really and sound for that line of work, for sure. And keeps exactly. It open. So what, what I learned then is just be careful and be, be very precise in your speech when interviewing because you've got to know who you're speaking to. 100%. That's very, very important. But at the same time, as we said earlier, you've got to have integrity. So be true to yourself also. I'm still trying to, I'm still, it's 13 years ago, 12 years ago, whenever it was, I'm still trying to decipher his reasoning. I don't agree with all of it. I agree with some of it and I get where he's coming from. And then on that note, a very memorable interview that I had was two years ago. I interviewed someone to be in customer support. and. He said to me during the interview, he said, well, I don't really like technology. And I looked, I was like, okay, tell me more. And anyway, we spoke and immediately it's just a red flag because we're a tech business. So, you know, knowing your audience, I guess uh, those were the two most. And what a wide breadth of something to not like. That's like not liking food. It's like, it doesn't make any sense. There's the technology pervades every aspect of our life. That's crazy. Probably a little bit of a disqualifier for somebody to coming to work at a technology and software company, I would say. Um, I love that. And I love, I just love playing in my head, like how I would have answered that question. And now that you've already given me the answer, it's easy, but it's like, I know as a trader, I'm supposed to keep my options open, but I've been so focused on this company and how well it fits me culturally and from a role perspective that maybe I'm not doing what I should be, but I've been just entirely focused on this. And maybe to my chagrin, but I think that that, maybe to my detriment, but I think that that's just where I'm at and I wanna be open and honest with you about how interested I am in this role and company. Maybe he would and, like that. And I was on that. Um, you know, I'm talking 12, 13 years ago. Imagine if I had the skills then to interview. So interviewing skills. Sure. Interview skills. I think the thing that is really important for people who are listening to this, who are interviewing, is don't be boilerplate in your answers. Don't even do tell them what you think they want to hear. That's not what we're saying. Be contextual. Know your audience. Build your answers around who you are talking to. Get a read on them. Understand their role. Understand their company. And be contextual in your answers and unique to them. Because that is going to show mental acuity, mental agility, the ability to ad be adaptive in different situations and also get to the answers that are going to resonate with them and be memorable for them. So many people go into these interviews saying, you know, what's your biggest uh, flaw? Oh, I'm too much of a perfectionist. It's like, you know, we know all the, 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 the studied answers. We know all the cliches. You've got to be contextual in your interview. And that means you've got to be authentic and got to be yourself and keep your integrity. I think that's super important. So when you hire somebody and you miss on them, because we all miss, is there something you can look back, like a theme that you can look back, like, man, I wish I would have done X. Is there any type of consistent theme there when you miss? Yes. Um, I think the biggest issue that we faced, and we, we've, we've fixed it now. I, I'd say we fixed it, and we'll, we'll never be at 100%, but we've, we, we, we've definitely sorted it out because we've reflected, is not giving feedback during the initial probation period early enough. Mm -hmm. And that's 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 really wrong to the higher it's 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 not about us it's about them and you you haven't given them feedback how are they meant to progress how how can you expect things from them if you haven't given them um time to fix it and also 
the feedback necessary for them to fix it and therefore the support up, I guess. So that was one huge mistake that we've made with a few people, but we've we've definitely fixed it and we've taken it upon ourselves um, to be very, very conscious of it. When it comes to the actual interview, um, being too hasty, I was being too hasty in hiring someone. So hiring someone out of desperation because we need to fill a role um, is, is a very, very bad mistake. Once again, we've definitely fixed that. And uh, as a result, our retention has gone up. Uh, not, not that we're a high churning business at all, but, um, and once again, it's wrong to the person who you're hiring because you're putting them maybe in an unpredictable and uncertain situation and maybe one that they can't actually fulfill. Yeah, be quick, but don't hurry. I think is advice that I always try to keep in mind because time can be the enemy in a hiring process, especially when you've got somebody super talented in front of you. But that does not mean that you rush through the process and you don't do your due diligence. I think the other thing that you said that stood out to me is Steve Jobs, famous entrepreneur, obviously, had a very famous quote that I, I listen to and I abide by. Not giving feedback to your employees is selfish. It means you're more worried about being well-liked than you are about giving them what they need to advance and be better. And I just totally agree with that. Now, the key is to do it early in their career. You have to build trust. They have to know your intent as a leader because if you're giving feedback, right, just to just you know, just know to give feedback and they don't know how it's coming and where it's coming from, that can be tough. But you've got to build that trust quickly and then you can give feedback. And that's moving at the speed of trust and something we talk a lot about here at MSH. So I love, love, love that. Last hiring question for me. Now, you talked about how you use your own assessment tool. But I'm interested, what type of technology do you use in terms of tracking applicants, managing the interview process? Are you using Excel and Notes? Are you using Airtable? Do you have an ATS in your company? Like, how do you manage technology? We use Kepler. Uh, we, we back ourselves. So we, we back ourselves as the most accurate skills data in the world. Uh, we've taken a lot of time and research in order you know, to really understand skills. So we do use Kepler. Um, and uh, we don't... In terms of tasks, we'll use tracking tools like ClickUp. We use ClickUp and uh, in terms of communication tool, we use Slack if it's internal communication, but uh, everything goes on Kepler. Every single thing goes on Kepler, um, all the skills data, but when it comes to an interview, we'll never ever just dump it onto an Excel. Um, it, it's, it's tracked meticulously, it's aggregated, it's compared, um, it's really put into a it's, it's, it's put to proper use, you know? I love that. Um, we, I hope that eating your own dog food, you are the type of hiring leader that we love to work with. You take it seriously. It's important. It sounds like there's a lot of prep that goes into it, whereas I don't always see that even in some of the biggest organizations in the world. So I, I give you big-time kudos for that, and it sounds like it's led to a high efficacy in terms of making great hires. So that's awesome. All right, I want to – I appreciate it. Yeah, you're doing a great job. I want to give, give you a couple more questions, just things I'm curious about. I'm interested. We've talked a lot about your company. Is there anything in particular right now that you're working on that you are super juiced about? Like you get out of bed every morning and you're excited about this. Any type of initiatives or anything we should know about? Yes, we're building a rocket to go to Mars. But uh, no. So <laughs> You really and like that. 10 other companies right now. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be ready in a month or two. We're, <laughs> we're, even though I'd love to do that, we're not doing that. But what really is, it's what's really exciting me is we're, taking a big play at HR tech, not just learning. Learning is a space we know. We're, we, we, we don't want to compete with the large learning systems, but what we do want to do is we want to make a big impact on the HR space to really give human resource consultants, business partners, personnel, the best experience ever. 
making their lives amazing. And the reason I say that, and that's what gets me out of bed in the morning at the moment, and is and you can see I'm fired up about it, is because currently human resources is very input driven. It's very process driven. How many leave days do you get? Okay, put the number in. How many leave days did that person take? Put the number in. Um, but what about the effect that taking leave has on someone's development? What about embedding everything or rather yeah, building everything based on skills, on roles? Once you know the role, once you know the person's role, you know what their skills are. You know how you can plan for succession. You know how you can performance manage. In a, your performance management is based on empirical evidence. Your hiring decisions are based on empirical evidence, right? And even payroll, anything to do with taking leave, anything to do with pay lines, it's based on skills. It's based on what you're bringing to the business and what you can bring to the business, not just based on the fact that you have a title and, and a lot more. So we're taking a huge stab at HR and the big play that we're starting off with is career mobility. So how do you redeploy talents in your business instead of Instead of retrenching people or moving them out of the organization, how about turning around and saying, hey, wait a second, this person may not be a good fit in sales, but let's let's say they've got very good communication skills. Let's put them in marketing because we can see that their skills match a very, very good marketing role. So how do you match those skills? That's just one example. And redeploying your, your staff is a gift not only to them, but also to you as a business. For many reasons and the world economic forum actually goes into this in detail i'm happy to share that report with you too if you want to have a look i'd love that we use that in the show notes i, I listen I have a, i'm in hr i have a lot of hr friends i know there are a lot of people listening to that that are, are saying preach and are excited about what you're saying and and not being so tactical and input driven and and being more strategic is what all hrbps and more all hr leaders i know want more of and they want technology that can support that and as you and I know, that's an area that is is woeful in terms of other technologies that I see out there. There's a lot of opportunity there. And you and me and others are, are trying to really innovate in that space. And it's really exciting. I think that's amazing. I'm so excited to kind of follow along and see what you all do. Here's our last question. I want to ask you, if you had any advice that you would give to your younger self or somebody early in their career that you didn't know then, but now you know, what would it be? So... I've thought about this a lot and the answer is patience mm. and and gary v actually touches on it in a big way but um people don't take patience seriously you you tend to rush into things because you want to get rid of the uncertainty and you don't want to dip into the chaos of life you want things to be normal but if everything was linear if life wouldn't be so fun would it opportunity comes in the chaos and with chaos Things are going to take time. You're going to lose deals. Sales cycles are going to be long. You're going to be disappointed. But all of those things are part of the journey. So patience means that you're able to not get upset easily about the fact that there's going to be setbacks and that things are going to take long to materialize or longer to materialize. Patience also teaches you that not everything goes according to plan. And chances are, whatever you think the business is now, it's not going to be in the future. I've learned that. And I'm sure I'm going to learn it many, many more times. I want to learn it many more times. But patience, once again, comes back to innovation with optimism. You can't innovate if you're not patient. You know, you, can't, you don't have to be... The, the big thing now, I mean, I've got a book here by Reid Hoffman, Blitzscaling, you know? And that's what everybody thinks that business is. It's just get there first, do it first. Yes, very, very important. 
you know, time to value. Very, very important for a product-led business. Very, very important. But be patient about it. Lead with quality. Um, you will get there. Keep chipping away. And um, I think it's a big pity that people don't take patience seriously. They're completely impatient. And you, you're hearing this from someone who is demanding and completely impatient. So it's taken me a long time to, to appreciate that value. The qualities that work for us are typically the ones that work against us. I'm also impatient. There's been many times where it's served me well, and there's been many times where it hasn't served me well. Yeah. To build on your point for all entrepreneurs and founders out there, you know, I've heard for a long time, I've studied entrepreneurs well before I even was an entrepreneur, and they always say, you know, don't quit, just keep going. And I would always look at it and be like, yeah, okay, that sounds like super cliche, of course. Yeah, just keep going. I will tell you my advice to everybody listening to this, especially when we go through a year where there's been, it's been a fist fight for a lot of companies, including ours. Stay in the fight, all right? There's so, if you stay in the fight as long as possible, you're going to end up winning. And that means the decisions you make, that means the way you wake up and the mindset you approach it with, that means how you define your strategy to be for the long haul rather than short-term gain. Just stay in the fight and you're going to weed out so many other people and so many other companies that do not do that and, and, and tap out and, and they gotta step out. And so I would say, that advice more this last 12 months has resonated with me than ever. And I would say to all entrepreneurs, don't have imposter syndrome. You didn't get dumb overnight. We all have bad years, good years, whatever it may be. Just stay in the fight. And, right? and just, to, just to add to that, it's, it's, it's amazing that, that you say that because if you stay in the fight, again, your plan may change, but an opportunity will come your way. And, you, you're, and, you'll, and that's when you'll find that opportunity. That's when you'll see it. I love it, Darren. Now, some people are going to, this might get characterized on Apple Podcasts as a book podcast now with all the book conversation we were having, but that's okay. We're here for the people. We want to give knowledge. There's a lot of great recommendations, a lot of great learnings. Darren, I really appreciate you spending some time with us. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, and I absolutely love your work, and keep going. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate that. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Oz.